Welcome to Fashion Forum, a series brought to you by the British Fashion Council aimed at creating positive change and highlighting the relationship between the creative industries, celebrating not only fashion designers, but also the broader creative community. Each episode welcomes a broad range of voices, sharing personal experiences as well as discussing the biggest issues in fashion today. I'm Josh Rivers, the creator and host of the podcast Busy Being Black, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be speaking to media darling turned queer theologian Philip Picardi the always enchanting fashion designer Charles Jeffrey, and James Potter, the front person and bassist for the Glaswegian band Walt Disco. Hi, y'all. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Thank you all for being here for, and for making time during this heat wave. <laughs> We're all sweating mm. behind the scenes. I know. I know. I have a question that I'm going to start with, but I'm going to actually going to flip the script and do a question that I ask on my podcast, Busy Being Black. How's your uh, heart? I'm going to start with James. How's my heart? Um, I think, like a lot of people, probably open to new things and new people, because mm-hmm. um, uh, it does feel like the summer of love. Um, just noticed in the, like, with dating being slightly more just sort of to the point. Uh, there's less small talk before you just go, shall we just meet up? Um, and then health-wise, it's good. <laughs> on, the, uh, on the physiological side of it, I feel quite healthy at the moment. It's good to hear. Charles, lover boy, how's your heart? <laughs> good. I'm feeling kind of um, very introspective at the moment. Um, I actually am having some time off, so you've caught me on my annual leave, and I'm just sort of like reading which I never get a chance to do and just sort of like thinking about my place in the world I don't know like I'm having been very kind of introspective so that kind of I guess covers my heart like where do I want it to be what do I want to love in the future like where do I want to take my work so I'm being very kind of like introspective I'm writing things down you know writing bullet points uh, oh it's serious <laughs> <laughs> there's a list <laughs> and Philip my love, how's your heart? Yeah, it's so funny you asked this question because I actually just had to go get an echogram done on my literal heart because oh. I we discovered this year my family has a genetic history um, of a heart problem called a bicuspid valve. And so I had to go check that I do not have the same condition. And I just got my results back last night at midnight and I'm all in the clear, which I'm really grateful for. Yeah. But it's funny because I've been thinking a lot about you know, my mom calls it the bad heart syndrome. And I've been thinking a lot about, like, as I was watching the the ultrasound of my heart on the screen, I just kept on thinking, how ironic to be looking for a bad heart in my own body. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. What are the symptoms of that? Like, I'm such a hypochondriac. Like, I feel like I need to know what the symptoms are of that. You, you would honestly know because it's, it's genetic. But b- basically, I guess your heart has three valves. They told me to look for a Mercedes-Benz logo in the, in the echogram. And I saw the Mercedes-Benz logo. And I was like, exactly. This heart is expensive. But my um, brother and some other men in my family have t- only two valves, which means they're, you know, they're more prone to things like heart attack and et cetera. So anyways, feeling very grateful. And also just thinking a lot about the things that get passed down to us and how we yeah. all cope with our legacies mm-hmm. and our traumas. So this is a really nice segue, actually. I'm interested in exploring today the intersection of music, fashion, and theology. I'm, I'm particularly drawn to the divine and how it shows up in language and in art. And if we understand ourselves as divine, then finding ourselves through our self-expression and our creativity is a type of spiritual experience. 
right? Mm-hmm. So I thought it'd be nice yes. to have that conversation with you. Philip, I wonder how you might begin to talk about how fashion and theology intersect for you. Yeah, sure. Um, obviously, in such a profound way, I grew up Catholic um, in a home in a home in Boston, Massachusetts, which is a very uh, Catholic place. My family uh, are a, a bunch of Italian American immigrants, and so again, just like this big history of religion in our in our household. But obviously, you know, I've been gayer than Christmas since day one. I didn't smile for three years of elementary school because I wanted to look just like Posh Spice. You know, I had all of these um, more effeminate expressions and desires that like I really didn't have a vocabulary for at the time and then once I realized I was gay I was horrified because I realized like I have to make a choice you know this is what I said to myself I have to make a choice between living who I am and then going to hell for it at the end of my life Mm. or living in secret and suppressing Mm. who I am and potentially being able to go to heaven and these are complicated things for a 13 year old to address right So what ended up happening is, despite all of my Catholic upbringing, despite instilling in me from a very young age the importance of prayer and community with God and community with one another, I ended up turning my back on religion while I was at Catholic high school and Mm. really saying, well, fuck God, fuck Catholicism, Mm. because if you don't want me, I don't want you either. So maybe I don't Mm -hmm. believe in you anymore. Once Mm -hmm. I became an adult and I went through the whirlwind of the fashion industry, you know, becoming an intern at Teen Vogue at 18 to the chief content officer of Teen Vogue at Mm -hmm. 25, right? Seven years from the bottom to the top of that food chain. What I did was I actually stopped to say, like, is my life fulfilling in the ways that I need it to be? Mm -hmm. And that's when I decided to reacquaint myself with God because I realized that I was doing journalism and especially in the fashion media, which is such a powerful engine of creativity. I was using these platforms to empower people to speak their own truths and find their own truths. And I hadn't acknowledged mine, which was that Mm. I missed my relationship with God and with the divine. But more importantly, that I let a bunch of men, old heterosexual men, tell me that God didn't love me anymore and Mm -hmm. I believed them. And how Mm -hmm. messed up is that, you know? Mm -hmm. So the pandemic happens, of course, my fiance is an ER doctor here in America. He fought the coronavirus pandemic at two of the hottest spots in the country, first in Queens, New York, then in Los Angeles, California. I just realized as I'm watching him literally fight life or death battle every day, I realized that I needed to make some really important decisions about my life. So I decided to apply to Harvard Divinity School And my uh, thesis project that I pitched to Harvard is called The Sanctity of Adornment. And it's really inspired by Tourmaline's artwork. She's a black trans woman um, who does a lot about finding pleasure and sensuality and owning Mm. our beauty as something that is divine. And I love the way she talks about these topics because how Tourmaline explains it is, you know, back before patriarchal religion, we honored our bodies as expressions of the divine. Adorning ourselves and making Mm. ourselves beautiful was not just materialism or vanity. It was actually about showing the gods that we worshiped the bodies they gifted to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she says, especially as it relates to cross-dressing laws, anti-cross-dressing laws and anti-miscegenation laws, she said, listen, this is a legacy that starts from the dawn of patriarchal religion all the way to Stonewall. They didn't want people cross-dressing because they know how powerful it is when you step into yourself and when you show yourself to the world. So Mm -hmm. what are they trying to hide from us by preventing us from realizing our own beauty, 
by adorning ourselves, what power do we have that they can't take away from us? Mm. And that was, um, that is the, project that I pitched to Harvard. I was accepted in March and um, in just about 10 days, I moved to Boston, Massachusetts to uh, start my study and yeah, do the whole thing all over again. (laughs) And I didn't know the title of your thesis when I wrote that question. (laughs) So that was serendipity. That was serendipity. Um, You you said a a lot to digest. What what stands out for me is that working in fashion, um, there is so much queering of religious iconography, right? And this kind of reclaiming of um, religious iconography to suit our own ends. And so I'm thinking now of James and um, the appearance of choirs in your music and in your your music videos, a choir of mermaids, I think it is. Um, I wonder how you might speak about how spirituality, faith, theology has informed your outlook? Um, well, I'm, I'm going to bring this to a conversation I had with my younger brother at Christmas. So we just went on a walk because we kind of needed out the house away from the like booze and the stuff and stuff. Uh, but then like he's quite a sort of a deep wee guy. So I like told him that I was non-binary on the walk. Like he, he kind of suspected it anyway, but that's we uh, when we first had the conversation um we got talking about how of much of like an a religious experience like self discovery is and he brought it back to two conversations that he'd had with uh two friends one who was also non binary and it described to my brother of what that self discovery and that like gender euphoria is like and then one with his friend who was grew up Catholic and then became Catholic again after not really practicing the religious again. And he said that the conversations uh, and the feeling that he got from both of those two people was so similar. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's, that's, that's so interesting, especially from so, like, uh, uh, like a brother that I'd not always have like con- deep conversations with. I was like, oh my God, like almost in tears, like on this wo- cold walk on Christmas. <laughs> so yeah, uh, uh, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, and that decision to re-engage in faith, I think yeah. is always a powerful one. I had a conversation with um, Rav Bansal about his decision to kind of re-encounter his own Sikhism once mm-hmm. he was old enough to read the text and understand it. And I think uh-huh. we, as, you, as you're suggesting, or as your brother is suggesting, yeah. uh, this is happening at the kind of self-discovery level as well. Yeah, and yeah. That connection's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. Like, Thank you like, for sharing that. Oh, mm-hmm. thank you. No, no, <laughs> anytime. Yeah, yeah I, think, yeah. I think gender euphoria like feels like like often like an angel like or something like as as, as uh, <laughs> i want to feel take as that <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um charles and this might be a bit of a reach and you can tell me if it is but i imagine the divine shows up at your lover boy club nights um this is a space where even if for one night people are centered celebrated and feel seen and loved do religion or spirituality impact your work is divine the intention I think so. I mean, it comes in like different ways. Like, I mean, to kind of jump from the kind of club night sort of space, like I've definitely felt this incredibly human spiritual feeling, like whether it's provoked or unprovoked, if you know what I mean, Um, when everybody is just kind of dancing to one piece of music. Like for me, that Mm -hmm. just feels like the closest to 
I guess the term the source, which is something that I've sort of researched Mm -hmm. on in like kind of times where I am feeling a bit more introspective, which is kind Mm -hmm. of now, I guess. And it's more of a sort of Buddhist sort of term where, you know, we're not kind of our minds or our bodies, we're the awareness of those things. And actually like Mm -hmm. we're all kind of one entity. Mm -hmm. And I think I've been kind of really like latching onto that of late, especially you know, dealing with, like, the anxieties that come with, like, coronavirus and, you know, being uh, a gay man in his 30s now in the fashion industry, having had my moment, you know, like, these are all things that are making me incredibly existential. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, latching onto this idea that your your body and your mind are not things that you necessarily have to completely be a slave to and that actually maybe you are, you know, the, the awareness of that in totality, I think, is very mm-hmm. calming and you know, it kind of reminds me of being in a club space because we're all one unit, What you know, dancing Mm -hmm. to the same tune. I think that's a really nice kind of metaphor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why live music is so important Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. well. And the sooner we can get back to that, the 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 more healing it will be. But I I kind of, you know, within my own, within my own work, like I think semiotics and symbolism are like a really big part of like my design aesthetic. And I'm really drawn to like Pictish symbology um, and semiotics. That's the right word. Symbology is the right word. Pictish symbols basically go in my work quite a lot. And obviously things like tartan and identity is a huge kind of um, part of it too. Like tartan being associated with different identities and mm-hmm. portrayal. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, like there's something about that. And then they also like how that relates to like the occult and, and like, you know, witchcraft and angels and all of this kind of things. Yeah, like, these yeah, are all yeah, things yeah. that I'm really, really drawn to. But then on the flip side, there's also physics, you know, there's like this whole idea of space. Like I, I, I love that. And, you know, I'm trying to find ways in which I can portray, like, what my natural aesthetic is with Loverboy through all these different paradigms. And I think, you know, yeah. it's really interesting, um, that idea of, like, connecting to God. Like, for me, God is, like, all these different things kind of all together, I guess. So it's, like, this inner mm-hmm. peace, essentially. Mm-hmm. I love that. I also, right. I wanted to say there was, like, this part of what you just said where you were talking about, like, being a gay man in his 30s who has had his moment and it's funny to hear you use that language which was so like a societal construct right after you were talking about the source or the divine source as this kind of wellspring of Mm -hmm. creativity because your moment we are none of us like limited to just one moment you know Mm -hmm. who knows what how many more moments you are going to have but if you believe in that source being an eternal source Mm -hmm. and something that is never depleted right then who's to say that your best moments aren't like right now or or just ahead of you Mm -hmm. no for sure thank you Uh, yeah i guess it's it's weird isn't it because you know it's so hard to sort of battle with that kind of construct that you're met with every day like you know you know, the the most kind of immediate thing is social media. Like I've now found this app, which I can use that kind of completely blocks it for a certain period of time. And like, that's actually led me to be able to like read and think a little bit more because it is that thing, you know, we are all addicted to our phones and that is the construct. It's like, this is the kind of standard, like this is what we're all doing. And it is so hard to get away from that. But then it's like, when you do, then it's like you kind of swim out and then suddenly you kind of feel that light and that kind of sort of calmness so it's like it's good I think that's the thing I'm trying to like figure out some strategies to put into place mm-hmm. so that I can find that kind of calm 
Mm. Well, and this is also probably part of the attraction to fashion, right? Not for just not just for fashion professionals, um, but for any of us who have an interest in how we express ourselves through clothing, is that it seems um, never ending, right? There are innumerable possibilities for how we might show up as ourselves in the world. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, I I, th- I think that being somebody who's kind of like an arbiter of of kind of taste and sort of like developments of fashion you know like it's it's so important to constantly be thinking about new ways in which to do things but then also that that you're kind of clashing with you know just being authentic at the same time there's also that thing too about just connecting the dots like with fashion where i imagine as a designer and i felt this as an editor working at fashion magazines fashion is a creative industry and then on the other hand because it relies on the commercial it can also feel incredibly relentless and Mm. um, almost like this sort of rat race to the bottom, you know, and I, I don't mean to sound too defeatist or fatalistic about it, but one thing I found that was really hard was being able to take time because the industry is so fickle in how it treats and reveres and discards of people all seemingly within, you know, two or three breaths of one another. And I, I felt like we saw a lot of designers over the pandemic, especially really rise to this occasion. I I think of Marc Jacobs, you know, from New York Fashion Week in general, where he made this deliberate choice to just be like, no, I'm not doing anything. It's a pandemic. And then came out at the end of it with this show that was the very best of Mark and like what Mark can put forward. And there were Mm -hmm. so many creatives who were able to use that time off as a place to really say, what do I want and what do I want my output to be? And what do I want my output to mean? And that intentionality with fashion has been missing for the most Mm -hmm. part in the broader industry. And it's refreshing to see it come back. I hope that's, you know, going to stick around. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think there's an intentionality with, um, um, Walt Disco and James, I will say. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you do a brilliant job at world making, right? Uh, you create spaces that look like the world you want to inhabit. Um, I'm curious if there's a queer politics undergirding your vision, your fashion. I, th- I think um, that in terms of the world making, it's kind of like creating the world and just like, or simply uh, the band that like we kind of needed growing up. Like, um, and especially like, like when we all started or joined the band, like we weren't really sure about our like sexualities or identities, but now, and now we are. So it's kind of been that world, that safe space with our best friends for, for us all to just figure it out. Um, so yeah, it, it is intentional. And we're like, I, I we will, we're kind of like, we don't want to keep that to ourselves. <laughs> that that world isn't for the, just for the six of us. It's for as many people as it can reach, um, which is like I suppose why we want to be like a worldwide band and not just like a local band or something like that. Um, and the fa- and then the fashion obviously is like just like a way to um, like express ourselves as much as we can, and like was often is often for all of us like the first way that we started like questioning ourselves, like uh, if it's just putting on a dress or whatever. So, uh, yeah. I'm curious actually if each of you can remember the moment it became fashion for you. Like if you knew, like if there was a moment, mine was Tom Ford's resignation from Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent. And I wept. (laughs) I thought Tom Ford was so amazing. And I, I, 
envied the worlds that he created and I wanted to be part of them. And like, that's when I thought, oh, I'm going to work in fashion. Do you have similar moments? Um, for me, it was Gareth Pugh, 2007. Like I was kind of like tiptoeing into my interest in fashion. Like I was just like into clothes and then I got really, really into, ba- into the band called The Horrors, which kind of jumping off what James said, like, mm-hmm. you know, they were the band that I needed to see, even though they weren't queer, they were like visually something that I really needed to see. Um, but then I was still kind of wanting to get into things like video game design. And then I saw Gareth Pugh's Catwalk collection and I was like, oh my God, like this can be fashion. Like, th- And it was just that moment of everybody just being completely bombarded by these like shapes these creatures from the night that he was inspired by and the music and everything and it was like I hadn't really been clubbing at that point I didn't know that was kind of part of it but for me I was like I want to go to London I want to go to the clubs I want to go to St Martin's I want to do I want to be a fashion designer like that for me was my fashion like inception for me yeah I I got into fashion when I was right right after I come out of the closet and it's kind of weird but I had read the Vanity Fair profile of Jennifer Aniston right after the Brangelina kind of scandal had erupted. And I was so just taken by the imagery and the photography and how vulnerable Jen looked and how it was all part of telling her story. And then that's when I realized that I wanted to be in in like fashion. And that's when I got more into fashion. I subscribed to WWD as like a 13 year old. (laughs) And um, you saved my pennies for that subscription because it was not cheap. And that's when I, I started to get a lot more into it because I realized what um, visual storytelling can do and how it can permeate culture in the way that maybe just words can't always. Mm. James, what about for you? I, th- I think it probably came from music. Well, music artists and like like actors, like like Grace Jones or like Tilda Swinton or oh. Adam Ant, like uh, like they aren't. That fashion isn't their main thing, but they like always like are thinking about it and it's always on their mind and like they can be a musician or an actor but also like have so so many of their toes in fashion and like as soon as I started getting into music I was like I don't want it to just be music I I wanted it to be fashion and wanted to work with as many fashion designers and just see how far I could go with it and like the same with acting I wouldn't I'd like to do that as well so um I think it was the fashion of like a multifaceted artist uh, that I, I got just fascinated by and obsessed with. In thinking about this conversation and the role we can each play individually to solve a collective problem, Philip, your leadership at Teen Vogue led to a market change in the future of the platform and inspired large scale change in fashion. And I think that you're part of a very small group <laughs> who do allyship in fashion really well. What have you learned about how allyship allyship is done properly oh gosh how much time do you have that's such a big question i think two minutes um two minutes okay (laughs) the biggest thing that i learned about allyship um you know it's complicated honey i'm going to be honest with you i feel so proud of the work that we did at teen vogue and i also know it took an immense personal toll on all of us who were a part of it whether we were fielding death threats from the religious or far right in America, which was happening at one point on a very regular basis to our writers and editors and myself, um, or whether or not we were kind of existing in this publishing microcosm, this ivory tower of Condé Nast that 
embraced uh, the kind of role that we were playing, but also wasn't exactly equipped or ready for it. Um, those are the things that I still think a lot about and um, have complicated feelings over. As an ally, you know, I felt it was my job to make sure I was leading, if not the most diverse newsroom in Condé Nast, then hopefully the, you know, one of the most diverse newsrooms in the entire industry. But I think I, I quickly realized to bring all, like, all of these wonderful people into a space that wasn't exactly hospitable to them mm-hmm. um, was also putting people at risk. And I was 23 when I started doing this work, you know what I mean? And so I wasn't exactly equipped with the managerial skills or with the life wisdom and insight um, to handle those things as totally and completely as I could have. And so... I think that there's just a lot there, you know, like I think we talk a lot about diversity and we look at magazine covers and as proof uh, allegedly of some sort of diversity or the like key appointments of just a select few figures who seem to constantly be rotated throughout this industry as sort of these bastions or examples of diversity. And I think it's still missing the much larger point that these issues are incredibly systemic and incredibly Mm -hmm. deep rooted. And it requires a much more concerted um, and coalition uh, kind of effort in order to really adequately address them and face them face them down. I think right now we seem to be willing to sweep things under the rug again because there was sort of a wave of appointments made and it's just not sufficient and it's just not mm-hmm. enough. And I know mm-hmm. that by watching it. And um, yeah, my heart goes out to all of the people who are still in publishing trying to make those really important changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the changes that are made, by people who have the right intentions and the willpower are high impact, totally. And so I, my heart goes out to those who are in those spaces trying to affect that change at the same time as well, right? Those people of color, those queer people who are flying the flag for, mm-hmm. for allyship and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles, you surround yourself with remarkable people and pursue your creati- creativity through illustration, design, events. As you move through the world making your mark, what are you learning from the people around you about what it means to show up as ourselves in the world? I think it's just how important it is to constantly be validating each other. Like, I think that, you know, this mainly comes more from just actually like teaching and and being in like a a teaching at a college like St. Martin's where you are kind of met with a lot of really amazing people and they're kind of going through a sort of... uh, you know, they're trying to express themselves and they're trying out different things. They're like looking, they're scraping the barrels of their personality to, you know, find diamonds that can kind of like separate them from other people. And I think, you know, it's so, so, so important to encourage and validate those people in order to make them like actually shine. And I've seen it through teaching for about six years now. Like how if you just give somebody that moment and see something in them and validate them, you know, how much they can bloom. And I think... That goes for like, you know, building spaces or creating content or artwork that kind of people can see themselves in. It's like that kind of key thing of like validating people. But like I'm, you know, in my own practice, kind of trying to constantly think of new ways in which I can do it that also feel like they're kind of validating myself because, you know, it's a two way street. You know, it's one thing to always do that for somebody else, but also to know how to do it to yourself. And, you know, I think that it's just so important to always kind of give yourself that time as well to sort of recharge in order to know how best to kind of move forward and and help people and and validate people. But from my experience, it is, it's just 
validation. It's just so important. Mm -hmm. That's really beautiful. I, I see you as such a powerful statement as well, mm -hmm. particularly when it's true. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, James, I think of all the young queer kids who'll be listening to your music, watching mm -hmm. you perform, um, and they'll see themselves reflected back at them. How much, mm -hmm. if any, it's not mm -hmm. always, how much of any of your self-expression is you intentionally, um, you know, shooting a flare up for others? I think uh, I like early on, like use the band as like, especially on stage, like it was, I felt I was, I could do it. And I was like brave enough to do it. Even if I wasn't feeling good that day, like as soon as I got on stage, I could feel brave enough to like be, hundred percent like of who I am and like someone at the show might n have not felt that but if they see someone doing it then then they might live their life differently so I think that was always like a powerful thought that I ha had and like just through like f messages that we've had from like fans like we got a message a couple of years ago from like um a, a mum from Fife saying that uh, their daughter like came out to them after we came to Fife to play a show and like Fife isn't uh, not many bands go there so um, and, and we got that and like just was in tears just being like oh my god <laughs> like and I think that's why like bands and like artists like going to like small towns like is like so important because um, like I'm from such a small place and, and, and lot, most people are from such small spaces. So uh, sometimes it need, like cities like just seem a bit too far away for like young people at times. Just to jump off that quickly, like, you know, one thing that's so rewarding about having our own e-commerce now is that we can see where everybody's buying our products from. And that, yeah, yeah. it's yeah, actually yeah. like so many people from like regional places in the UK. And it makes me so happy mm -hmm. because, you know, like being in a city is just such a bubble. And like, as you say, um, James, it's so hard for people mm -hmm. to sometimes come here and live here. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I just love the fact that like people can kind of buy into us we can be democratic <laughs> enough that you can have something of ours and it can make you feel a certain way or like with music as mm. well they can that can yeah, permeate yeah. other people's lives like it's just so mm -hmm. there's this there's good to it it's it's mm -hmm. good to hear yeah it reminds me of a question someone asked me do you want to have impact or power and it's impact right seeing yeah, yeah. your what you create what you put out in the world what you're attempting to do mm -hmm. to have it land in the lives of others is mm -hmm. hugely impactful and it makes I always feel when I get good feedback about busy being black that I'm doing something right. Mm -hmm. It's really affirming. Yeah. So to close, what would you each say to someone who is looking at the world around us and who thinks they can help change it for the better? I will say coming from uh, like a working class background and, you know, managing to get down to London, going to St. Martin's, not having hardly any money when I started my company and, you know, having loads of moments where I thought, I don't think I can do this anymore. Like, I think if you feel in your gut that you've got something to give the world, like, just trust that because there is always, 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 always a way of making it work, even if it can get really, really dark sometimes. I think it's always important just to listen to your gut. And if you can see yourself being that person in the end, like, just just keep finding a way. Like, uh, it, it can it can be hard but if someone like me can do it, someone like you can do it. I, th I think, like, any conversation can, like, help change the world. Like, it's, if, it's watch if it's when you're watching the news with your family and you 
notice your, I don't know, gran or your dad, I don't know, say something that you don't disagree with, like have that conversation, be bold enough to have that conversation if it's safe to do so, like have those conversations at the pub, like, like educate educate your friends like if they if they don't know about some things that you, you do know about and like each one of those conversations is way more life-changing and like world-changing than often uh, like a celebrity or person of power saying mm. it because it might seem too distant or not real enough so i think everyone everyone can change the world i love that start where you are it mm-hmm. sounds like mm-hmm. yeah and philip last but not least Um, yeah, I think that I am often of two minds about this, right? On the one hand, I remember what, um, I went to this like school of philosophy at NYU and I remember the kids at like the business school used to make fun of us because they were like, always like, what are you going to do with your degree in beauty? You know what I mean? Or your like philosophy degree, like, you know, totally practical. And I remember one of my professors heard them making jokes about us in the hallway and he came out and he was, and he like pulled all of these business kids aside and he was like, just wondering when has the world ever suffered from having too many big thinkers, right? Like what is the harm in encouraging and allowing people to think and dream as big as possible in the hopes that there will be, potentially a bunch of people they'll meet along their journey who are able to make these big dreams come true. So I think the first thing I would say is like, don't dream about what you want to change or how you want to change it in terms of logistics in order to actually make change. You kind of just have to dream of the impossible. And then you can slowly start to see that I think many times the impossible becomes quite possible. And then on the other hand, you know, especially echoing, I think what these other guests have said today is that, you know, one of the things that COVID was able to show us in real tangible ways was how truly interconnected we all are and how each of our behaviors impacts everyone else, which is why there's such an importance of mask compliance and vaccine compliance right now. Mm -hmm. We are unavoidably and indistinguishably interconnected, all of us, Mm -hmm. this entire Mm -hmm. world. And so I think about that in terms of not a virus, but I do think about that in terms of something like the divine or the potential for change. And it's, it's actually can be really inspiring that way. Because if we think about how interconnected we all are, you can change the world just by focusing on the city block that you live in, or the block of the suburb that you live in, or that like intersection in the town that you live in, or a certain dress code at your school. Um, It reminds me a lot of a tweet by one of my dear friends, John Paul Brammer, who says, like, shout out to all of the queer people who are being visibly themselves, because you may very well be inspiring a person who's going to step into their truth and and their own identity. Like, you're the possibility model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you never know how you're changing the world just by walking down the street and being yourself. Of course, we all need to be doing more right now than just walking down the street and being ourselves. Um, But I think it's a really good start. Mm-hmm. I love that possibility model. That's a wonderful way to end. Thank you all for being here. Oh, and my nephew's here. <laughs> uh, I'm just on a call. Um, thank you all for being here. <laughs> thank you. I really love this conversation. Fashion Forum is a co-production between the British Fashion Council and In Talks With Productions. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. If you'd like to find out more and join the conversation on social media, then head to londonfashionweek.co.uk or at London Fashion Week.